This is Kevin Evans with the Chapter by Chapter Life class at Crossroads Assembly of God in Greenville. And we are studying the book of Acts. And last week we finished up uh, chapter 7, which is the uh, uh, defense case and stoning of Stephen. And... Uh, and we're going to pick up chapter 8 today. And uh, basically, um, Stephen, who was, just as a recap, was uh, one, of the, one of the seven, as Luke calls them, who are kind of proto-deacons for the early church. And uh, they were handling the administrative side of the church. And uh, uh, Stephen was one of those. All of the seven were... Hellenistic Jews, meaning that they came from a foreign background of some kind or another and were probably studying scriptures in Greek, which is called the Greek Septuagint Bible. They, there are two translations of the Bible in the two languages that were most prominent at the time. And there were cultural differences between the Hellenistic Jews and the, uh, the Hebrew Jews. And... Um, and that's what brought the whole issue with the. Uh, that's funny. That, that, that's what brought brought the whole issue with the um, with, with with feeding the, the, the widows to begin with. Oh my goodness! My class is throwing me off my game. I ap I apologize, internet. My class is lively. Where was I? Let's see. So, um, That's a good question where you are. Where, yeah. And so, uh, after uh, St Stephen uh, irritated the, uh, a group of Hellenistic Jews in a synagogue, and uh, he would, they brought charges against him before the Sanhedrin, uh, back in the temple again, and, and they, uh, after he defended himself, he angered them so badly that against their own laws, they drug him out and stoned him. So it was uh, uh, kind of a, I don't think the Romans cared as uh, yet pointed out. However, uh, this wasn't the, the procedure that they were supposed to have followed through. Um, as near as I can categorize this in modern terms, he went to trial, and then shortly at the end of the trial, they just lynched him. They didn't bother. They didn't bother, you know, committing him to, you know, coming up with a verdict and, and going through all of the civilized ending. They just just killed him right there. You know. Well, pretty well. Hey, it's the old Roman way, right there. Okay, so. Uh, Luke then continues this story, and by the way, he ends that story with, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. So Luke, we have to remember, was a disciple of Paul, and he was writing this as a disciple of Paul. And we have to assume that most of his direct firsthand information is coming from the boss that he's following around. So uh, in, in Acts, 
largely turns into the story of Paul's ministry, you know, toward the end, because that's where, where the source information is coming from. So here, Luke is introducing Paul to us, but Paul is on the other side of this conflict, and he is working for the Sanhedrin as an up-and-coming Pharisee, and he is actively prosecuting uh, the Christian church. That too. <laughs> Prosecution, persecution. It says Bruce says. Bruce. That, that Bruce. he probably was the Preco at the execution, which is another word for Harold. That meant he was in charge. He declares him guilty and he does not participate in the actual stunt. That, that is one interpretation. It is one interpretation. But I like yeah. Bruce. Okay, fine, fine, fine. In my Bible, he well, I don't think that's in question. I think he's giving approval. So he was on their side. He's at least rah-rahing. We can argue about whether or not he was in charge of the whole thing or if he was just one of the up-and-comers. You know, um, I know what I would do if I were writing the screenplay, but that really doesn't matter. Huh? Oh, I would make him the up-and-coming young upstart. You know. Because we have to have we have to have a, a, a character development and story arc. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But he, okay. actually, he actually kind of was, because if you read this, it says that he went from holding the coats to a great persecution. Well, there is that. Okay, and so we're, uh, Luke continues into chapter 8, and what we're going to do, is, what we're going to see in this first section is he covers a whole lot in about two paragraphs. And it's probably a pretty big time jump here as well. This is going to cover several weeks of development and, um, and, and then we're going to uh, get into another one of the deacons, which is Philip. So he's going to tell Philip's story throughout this next chapter. So we, we've talked about Stephen, uh, the first martyr, and now we're going to have Philip, the evangelist, as he is often called in the early church. Okay, so with all of that set up, let's look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 8. And I'm just going to read the first three verses. Uh, and Saul was there giving approval to his death, which is the end of the last segment. And then we begin the new story. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house, he dragged off men and women, and he put them in prison. So, the Sanhedrin make this proclamation against Stephen, or they just stone him and don't. But at that point, they follow through with that by saying that Stephen is heretical, and then they have, I have to assume from this, that the Sanhedrin has now declared the entire Christian movement heretical, and they're sending out their own emissaries to persecute and stop this little cult that is teaching heretical thought about, you know, about the Bible, which, which they have done in the past with other heretical thoughts and cults. They're trying to keep everything pure in Jerusalem. So, so that's happened, and Saul is 
one of the agents who is going out, seeks, deliberately seeking out the church and dragging them off to prison. He is dragging women and, and families out of their homes and putting them in prison with the authority of the temple. I didn't know this, but this was actually bigger news because he's going against his master teacher. Because Gamaliel was known for saying, compromise, let's just let it wait out, do not persecute. And Paul went, Saul went against it. So this is like a break between Saul and Gamaliel, they say. That's interesting. I never, I didn't see that note. Point for Yek. Point for Yek. So, so he's kind of spreading his wings here, is what we're saying. So he he's establishing his own uh, area. Yes, Bill. Don't you think he was trying to maybe maybe he was trying to take the place of Galilee? Maybe he wasn't going to take place of Galilee. He was just going out himself. Yeah, I think he's trying to. I think he's trying to gain prestige among his little priesthood. They still consider Galilee the number one. Oh, sure. Um, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Uh, are, we referring, are we referring to the Sanhedrin here? Usually when they stoned somebody, they just left them there. You know, they, just, they stayed to rot. Uh, they were already buried, according to you. Well, uh, yes. They're not going to touch a dead body. Right. So, so there, were, there were a lot of reasons to just leave them there and so uh, they are already covered with rocks but you know so so they're old skeletons all kind of wrapped up in the rocks at the bottom of the wall right um, somebody goes out and dug him out under the rocks and, and buried him proper I figure it's probably his, the other apostles or the, the Christians or maybe one of the others that were working with him godly men uh, I have read commentaries that suggested that this was the Sanhedrin, and it suggested that there were people in the Sanhedrin that were still sympathetic to the cause and felt that that went too far and that he was lynched, basically, and uh, they'd done him badly. And so they wanted to show him honor by burying him. I, I, I don't know if there's anything wrong with that interpretation, but I'm not sure. I don't think it's the only one. Um... So they buried Stephen, and they called out this uh, attack on the church. Now, when you are uh, part of a small religious organization, and the authorities all around you uh, start hunting you and dragging you out of your house and imprisoning you, what does a smart, small Christian organization do? You run. Yeah. <laughs> and hide. Uh-huh. Uh, and I don't want to die, and I don't want you to get me, so I'm going to get away from you. And so they scattered. And uh, interestingly, uh, Christ gave the... Uh, gave us a commission and said we will need to leave uh, Jerusalem and go into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth in that order which I always thought was kind of funny since it doesn't seem like they're going very far because they're right here and Judea's right here and Samaria's right there you know you're barely out of the Fertile Crescent you know well it's still in the Fertile Crescent anyway uh, you know 
It's not, the ends of the earth is a long way. That's, that, that, that's a big jump compared to those first two little bitty jumps. Don't you think that maybe Christ was kind of behind this persecution to cause him to move out because they hadn't moved out yet? Behind it? Oh. Well, mm, you can argue that or used it when it used, happened. Used it. Okay, let's rephrase it then. Interesting. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I think that God well, uses all persecution. together for our good. Yes. And uh, like I, I, I keep quoting the great Dwayne Evans, my father, who said that, you know, if we do not go out and, and, and evangelize, if we do not go out and teach, God's going to make that happen anyway, which is why church strife happens. Because Baptist churches have a, are notorious for church fights where we break up and half the church goes down the road and forms another church. And then that one has a big fight, and then they split up and form another church. And nobody understands parliamentary procedure like Southern Baptists. And, uh, yeah, it's like that. And so that, the, the town I grew up in had five huge Southern Baptist churches in it and not much else. And it's because and every one of them was a direct result of a split off of one of the others, you know. And... Uh, so if we don't go out and preach the word, God's going to you know, find a way to put us there. And so the church goes underground, and they scatter, and they go where they're safe. And, of course, they're telling everybody about this you know, guy, Jesus, that they just you know, came across. And they're kind of, uh, they're reluctant missionaries. They're inadvertent, accidental missionaries. But they're going out and spreading that word because they're giving their personal testimony. Right? Everybody has a, has a sphere of influence, and, and, and God has advanced their sphere of influence by scattering them. And this pattern has been repeated in country after country after country. Uh, as I'm, I'm ranting here. Uh, before, okay. Um, this is why we have so many different brands of Baptist churches, Southern, Missionary, and all them different ones. <laughs> That's more complicated than that, but, uh, but I'm going to let that stand. But I'm, I'm not going down that road. Oh, come on. Okay. Uh, I don't remember. Okay. We had a, there were a bunch of Christian ministry missionaries in China before China uh, closed down and became a communist country and was completely shut off to the West. At that time... The best estimates by most church historians say there were in the neighborhood of 400,000 Christians in China. And that's not a perfect estimate, but that's pretty close. And there was a lot of speculation when, we, when no denomination was able to get in any kind of evangelist into China during that time. We, we did not know what was happening with the church in China. And there was a lot of speculation about how many uh, Christians we were going to find in China if it ever opened up again and usually those estimates were quite low and, and, and there were all these plans and how if China opens up again how we're going to get in, where they're going to put churches, where there's going to need to be churches where the population areas were there was a, there was a plan of attack, a Christian plan of attack on, chi on China if and when things changed and they loosened up. Well about Two decades ago, it loosened up, and China started to kind of open up to the Western world, and we could see what was there. 
And they found, do you know the number? I don't know. They were bigger than us. <laughs> the, the, it, it, was, it, was, it was something like 6 million people. Or, you know, it was, uh, you know, it, it went from 400,000 to, I think, I think it was 6 million. Huge. It was a huge population. And, and China is a massive population to begin with, and it covers a massive amount of territory. It, it, it's an enormous area. And there are underground churches all over China. And, and, and that happened because of persecution. That's the, that's the History repeats itself. If you look through the growth of the church throughout the last 2,000 years, the greatest growth came under hardship, not prosperity. Yes. Prosperity, if prosperity, Dr. Bartell told me this, prosperity is the poison to the church. Wow. Because he says, if you notice, if you watch growth, when it's prosperity, but I like my comfortable chair. Wow. Yeah, but that's also, well, the greatest movement of Christianity happened during the Great, great Depression. Well, well yeah. yeah. I mean, the church career is a depression. And hardship can be persecution, be it economic, it can be financial, it can yeah. be disease or anything like that. But, that. but the thought that we have, you know, prosperity brings more and prosperity makes us lazy. That's right. Prosperity mm-hmm. makes us, well, God will take care of it because he's already taking care of me. Well, no, we don't need God. We're taking care of ourselves. When, when we get prosperity, prosperity. When we get pros- <laughs> point for faith. No, but I mean, but when, when we get prosperity, instead of trying to spread it, we work hard to try to protect our prosperity. Yep. And the gospel suffers. Fair. Where's my point? I already gave you one. Okay. <laughs> Verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So the people that they despised as Samaritans, which they thought were dogs. Yeah, we need to talk about Samaritans yet again. Mm-hmm. I think they got they got they got <coughs> they got to get benefit from this, even, um, even though the Jews probably thought they didn't deserve to. Yes, um, Samaria is a, a small area in the mountains northeast of Jerusalem. And uh, there are a few cities in there, but they're smaller cities. And it is populated by a half-breed people that good, honest, God-fearing Jews did not want to have anything to do with. And they looked down on them like uh, idiot, heathenistic half-breeds. And they didn't want anything to do with them. And so uh, Christ reached out to a Samaritan woman at a well. That was a big deal. Christ told the story about the good Samaritan. That, that had a lot of heavy impact because the guy that was being good to people was the one that everyone didn't want to have anything to do with. Uh, and so that's what made that such a, a powerful story is their attitude toward the Samaritans. Uh, the background to the Samaritans, if I can do this briefly, and I'm not sure it's possible, 
uh, is that during the, uh, the Old Testament period when they were conquered by the Assyrians, the Assyrians' way of doing things was to capture everybody that had any importance at all, which is all of the upper class, and they would haul them off into slavery and remove them entirely from the country. Then they would take other peoples that they may have captured or just more Assyrians, and they would give that property to them, and they, and they would move in foreigners to take over this area. However, they left the lower class because they were the ones working the farms because, you know, if you're an important Assyrian, you don't want to get your hands dirty. So we had to have somebody we could boss around. So we have these foreigners that come into this area, and this covered a lot of the northern area of, of uh, you know, the northern kingdom. And uh, they, of course, end up intermarrying with the lower class Jews that were left in the area. So now we have uh, a descendant, the, which led to the Samaritans. So the Samaritans are half foreign ancestry, which may be mixed foreign ancestry, not necessarily one particular nationality or race, but then you, it was uh, the lower class Jews, so it wasn't the important people, it was the scummy people that got left, and they're, they're, they're kind of stuck up in the hills. They're, they're, they're hillbillies. <laughs> you know, it's not that far-fetched from the Appalachians. Anyway, uh, so, so they're up there, yes? Getting there, getting there. Getting there. Okay, so when the uh, Jews come back after captivity and they're rebuilding the temple, uh, the, the, the Samaritans asked if they could be part of the temple and help rebuild it, and they were rejected because they were foreigners and they had all these uh, uh, cultural uh, foreign things and they're worshiping other gods and, and they were all muddled, and they were not welcome because they just weren't good Jews. And so they, they shooed them away. And, uh, and they rebuilt their temple. And uh, so the Samaritans, who can't come to the temple, well, they built their own now, didn't they? So they built a temple up in the hills of Mount Jerusalem, whatever it was. And uh, they're, they're up in Samaria, and they have a temple. It's very close to the temple that's downstairs, down in Jerusalem. And they start attending that one. And then over the centuries, they start developing their own mythology around it and they retell this story where they're the heroes. And so by the time the Samaritans are over with, they are swearing that their temple was the original temple and the one down in Jerusalem is the copy and that they're the original people and the one in Jerusalem were the, were the usurpers, kind of like what the Muslims did when they retelled uh, 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 Ishmael and... Isaac, thank you. I have, I have brain plaque. Yeah. Okay, so uh, that's kind of, so, so that's where they are. Um, today, there is something like 800 people still in this population that are still very uh, a solid cultural group in Samaria. It, it's, it sounds like one small village, but you know that's basically there. And there's still there's still a temple in that, that mountain, and they still worship there. And they have this whole developed idea about how they're the original people of God. And uh, occasionally they will marry into, you know, uh, the people around them, which is the Jews at this point. And, uh, and, and the, the population is, is shrinking. But they've been there forever. And they've been looked down on. 
by the Jews forever. And guess what? They're still looked down on by the Jews, those little 750 people. They barely notice them anymore because they're not even there, but they're still, they're not, it's not like they're welcome. You know what I'm saying? Uh, when someone from Samaria uh, in, marries into a Jewish family and they want to you know, uh, join the temple, they have to approach the temple as a foreigner would, and they have to go through all the steps that any foreigner would go through in order to be acclimated into the Jewish faith. And so uh, men have to be circumcised, you have to uh, be baptized into the Jewish faith, and there's probably a number of other steps along the way as well. I don't know the whole procedure. It's kind of like a Christian woman or man marrying a Jew. Yes. They have to yes. So, to Judaism. Samaritans are considered to be pagans by Jews. So, uh, we have these hillbillies up in the hills, for the lack of a better description. And uh, Philip is, is being hunted by the Sanhedrin, the, the, good, the good Jews by the temple where he's trying to teach. And that's where he runs. Do fugitives hide in gated communities? You have to be. <laughs> no, because there's cops that drive past every day. There, there are security guards by the gate. No, fugitives don't hide in gated communities. Uh, no, where do fugitives hide? They go where the cops are afraid to go. No, no, that's not good. Yes, it is. You sink to you, you sink to the bottom and you hide where it is dangerous to dress up. That's right. But why wouldn't you go to somewhere where you knew the cops were and then you just blend in and then the cops wouldn't know you were there? Well, you're smarter than most if you if you can pull that off because that's dangerous. You you don't want to be around the people that are hunting for you. Hiding in plain sight is a tricky, dangerous option. Uh, Philip. Well, he went to hide in the trailer park, didn't he? I wonder why. Wouldn't there be other places that he could go? It makes me wonder. See, I, see I'm speculating here. I did, there's nothing in Scripture that gives me any of Philip's uh, background. But I'm thinking, I'm thinking he had a cousin who was a Samaritan. Or the Holy Spirit. Uh, or the Holy Spirit sent him there. Or I think, you know, <laughs> my, my personal experience has been that those without a lot of financial resources tend to be more open to the gospel than those mm. that have it. You know, I've noticed that too. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's part of it. I've also noticed through my extensive genealogical research that people do not go into the wilderness by themselves unless the Holy Spirit is, is pointing that direction. Nobody walks into the desert alone for the fun of it. No, what we do is we go with a crowd of 10 people that we can depend on, or we have somebody in the desert that's already settled and we're gonna go join them. There's not, you don't just walk into nowhere for no reason. There's always a reason. That's why missionaries are so great. A lot of the places they go to Come on, if it wasn't the Holy Spirit, would you go there? I mean, Mark Montaigne going to India at that time, which 
yeah. got off the plane and said he smelled death when you walk off the plane. Who goes there on their own without the Holy Spirit? In fact, what they do if you're a new missionary is they send you where none of the other ones who are there will go. Because you're the new guy? Yeah. Exactly. That, that fits, doesn't it? Yeah, I know. That's what I was going to say. Well, it's like you think about you think about all the places all over the world, Africa, India, Syria, all of these places where, I mean, they were unheard of and missionaries went in. They didn't know what they were going to face. And some of, a lot of them got killed, you know, because, you know, that's just the culture there wasn't ready for them, but they kept going until finally they were able to break through, right? Or not, not killed, but they're exposed. Like Liberia is the missionary graveyard for all West Africa hmm. because there were so many diseases, yeah. not just people after you. The last place you want to go. Yeah. I see that's where okay. also the prosperity is. Yeah. If you watch the church planning part of this in the district, you got there is a long line of preachers who want the Assemblies of God to put him in Frisco, Texas. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> sure. Prosper, Texas. Man, they're, they're, if we let everybody do it, we'd have an Assembly of God church on every corner in Frisco, Texas. Because you can't get anybody to come to Blue Ridge. Mm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you know what? The district supports it. Oh, turn, turn that off. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when you go and ask the district to start you, a church in Frisco, they the you go with the anointing of the spirit. I know. And you nice stay. To support <laughs> and you outlive everybody else. Is that the plan? And the Holy Spirit takes over. Okay. So you go from 30 churches to 3,000 churches yeah. in the same place. But you did that over 17 years. Hmm. Here's the embarrassing thing. From what I understand, and you can correct me, Jim, and you can correct me, Brother Yak. But the foreign nations are doing better and have more churches than we actually have here in the United States. Oh, way more. Because people over there seem to be more accepted than the, the American people. Well, we got a ton of churches here. Yeah, but I don't think we can touch Every what they... A lot of those people outside of the United States aren't tarnished by you know, negative things. You know, like their lives are different in my opinion. They don't live... The church life is over. Oh, I, I was going to let you argue radio. the point. Yeah. They have radio. Yeah. Every person has a cell phone. Yeah. Every person. So for whatever reason, Philip goes to Samaria, and Philip preaches Christ, and Philip, uh, the Holy Spirit through Philip, casts evil spirits out of possessed people. And cripples are healed, paralytics are healed, and they respond. Yeah. And so he starts to build a Samaritan church. And Samaritan is already, Samaria was already exposed to Christ when Christ came through with the woman of the well, yeah. and they stayed there for a week. And so I assume we've got the beginnings of a Christian church anyway. It wasn't like it was news, you know, or, or new to them. But, but now we see this movement of the Spirit, and he starts to evangelize Samaria, which brings us to the next section, 
which is about Simon the Sorcerer. It just gets even more fun. <laughs> so I'm going to read through verse 25, and with any luck, we can unpack this in the next 15 minutes. No, that's not going to happen. Okay. Uh, verse 9. For some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, The man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. And when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. That's what Luke said right there. Simon believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them and they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. And what does the message interpret that to say? Uh, basically, uh, go to hell with go, your money. Go to hell with your money. There you go. There you go. Uh, 21. So, it, well, it was in, in the Greek, it was strongly stated. Let's just put it that way. Uh, uh, the, 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 the NIV is kind of uh, polite and euphemistic. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Peter blasted him. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me that nothing you have said will happen to me. Please, I don't want the, circumstance, I don't want the consequences of anything that just happened. It wasn't, no, why well, not sorry? It doesn't say I'm sorry. It says don't hit me. Right? He's not sorry. He doesn't want punishment. There's a difference there. The curse causeless does not count. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many Samaritan villages. Okay, Simon the sorcerer. First television preacher. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm not going to touch that one. Thank you. Uh, all right. Uh, in the Greek, he is referred to as Simon the Magi, and it's interpreted sorcerer. And uh, Magi, or however you pronounce that, can uh, be interpreted a lot of different ways. It had to do with astronomy slash astrology because it was more mystical than it was scientific. There's a lot of pseudoscience in it because they weren't actually watching the stars. There were charts of stars. They were trying to figure out where the stars were going. It was the beginning of modern astronomy. However, they were attesting uh, all kinds of spiritual significance to those movements. And so they were kind of reading futures by stars. 
the three wise men that came and visited uh, Christ at his birth interpreted their stars to be a king rising, so there might be something to it. And, but, but they weren't necessarily uh, good Jewish rabbis that were coming to visit. They were uh, pagan priests or students of pagan beliefs. Well, you know, it's a wonder that God didn't already strike Simon the sorcerer before because my Bible says that they, they looked at him as the man with God, the man with God's power. Getting there. Um, they also read entrails that they would kill an animal, pull the entrails out, and read the entrails for the future. That was a big deal. And actually, Jewish rabbis kind of snuck up on the edge of that too in some of their their, their customs as well. So, so there, there's kind of a whole dichotomy here. So was he okay? The Magi weren't necessarily satanic people, but they were. Uh, not really, they weren't really tradition, they were kind of heretical in some of their beliefs, yeah. And it was, uh, and so they're, 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 it's a fringe belief at the very least, and it was kind of broad. It could mean a lot of things. Now, Simon, he is, as you just said, Bill, uh, this man is the divine power known as the great power. That's, that's a heavy statement. They're saying that he isn't just a practitioner of this power, he is the power. My Bible says that they said this man is the great power of God. Which means that they really, they're worshiping him as a God, which is not unusual culturally as well. And we have to assume that he's pulling off some pretty good magic tricks. Now I could say, and there are those who would say that he's a charlatan and he's good at sleight of hand, and a sleight of hand can be very convincing, and he, he's got a practice, you know, bit, and he's convinced people. Or uh, he's actually uh, performing some metaphysical things. But it's not from God, if it is. And, and, and I do, yeah, it's satanic. And so I think, uh, you know, I, I think there are people that can perform honest-to-goodness magic, and, but 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 that doesn't come from God, no. and so he is he he is a practitioner of sorcery, honest, genuine sorcery. God, it's a wonder God didn't strike him like he did Herod, because when Herod thought himself to be God, God struck him with worms. Well, there's been a lot of people that have proclaimed themselves God. So I there's a lot of ministers on television. I'm really on that. Get, you really you, you're not, really on that, aren't you? Yeah. Be a lot of people knocked down probably if we. If you um, really uh, just because we're, we're little gods. Just because I did the homework. Um, 200, uh, 200 AD, uh, there are historical texts that are pretty accurate and dependent upon that said that there was a statue to Simon the Magus, which is this, this person in Rome uh, among the pantheon. He is considered one of the, he was worshiped as one of the lesser gods in the Roman pantheon. So Simon the sorcerer, supposedly after this incident, went on to continue to sell himself as a, as a, a god and had a following throughout the rest of his life to the point that somebody actually built a statue of him in Rome along with the rest of the Roman gods. Uh, he is also attributed as being the initial founder 
of the Gnostic uh, uh, religions that grew up about the same time as that statue. It was about 200 to 300 AD, which, which is basically, and the Gnostics show up later in scripture, and basically that was a group of people that were saying that here's the scripture, we believe the scripture, God spoke to us here, but God is speaking to my heart now and it's different than what is in scripture, so since I'm talking to God, then this is the new and fresh word, and therefore you need to follow me because I just got the new and fresh word, let me tell you how it's going down now. And they, they kind of started these little cults. And they're yeah, Mormons. it's a cult. They're called kinda... Mormons. That's what the Mormons okay. That does sound familiar, doesn't it? They, they even wrote their own Bible. You know, so. yeah. Well, I also call them pseudo charismatics. It's basically uh, a truth through revelation, is the idea behind the Gnostics. And so Simon evidently was doing that kind of preaching, we can assume, based upon the very, very early church tradition about him. In fact, I worked with a man that said that he was at, he went to a Mormon church and he said it was like they were having a free-for-all in the service. You're I, insulting all the Mormons no, that are no, listening. No, no, no. <laughs> you know, okay. Let's not alienate, you know, uh, all of the state of Utah. So, um, so Simon himself believed and was baptized. We're running out of time rapidly here, but um, Luke says, not according to my watch, Luke says that Simon believed. But did he actually believe? He said he did. Because they said that then, then Peter had to reprimand him. Uh, he was. He was. Say anything after that verse. He was baptized. He made a public profession of his faith. But reprimand doesn't mean I'm saved. There are Christians that. I know, but I'm saying that. It never. It never. It never. It never says the next verse. Never says that they actually prayed for him. So I think he was practicing a counterfeit to what God has. Then he got exposed to the real thing. But then he came in conflict with the real thing and, and giving up our pride and uh, our self-servingness. Yeah. Kind of like the rich. And yeah. being submitted to Christ's lordship. Yeah. And he kind of stopped and paused and said, whoa, wait a He minute. took the first couple steps, but then when he got serious. Well put. Point for faith. Yeah. It's kind of yeah. like okay. the, the rich young ruler that didn't want to give up his riches to follow Jesus. Right. Same thing. Hit a wall and like. Do I, do I submit to his lordship or do I not? And that's where he was right there. So he's following Philip, and Philip is, I assume, uh, treating him like a believer, and he's learning from Philip. And then the apostles come in, and evidently they have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. So they've been saved. They've made a profession of faith, I'm assuming, from this. And then uh, when, when Peter and John came in, they started laying on hands. It doesn't say how the Spirit was manifested, but they're being uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. And it was obviously something visual. And uh, Simon notices this, and he wants some because that's a pretty good show. Oh, oh, and by the way, he had a following before in Samaria, and now that following is following Philip. And so he had a whole thing going, and, and it just got sucked up into this. And instead of fighting it, he joined it, which is a smart thing to do, by the way. Yeah. 
And if we're assuming that he wasn't completely genuine, then he's trying to, you know, co-opt this and, and, and get back to his previous con. So now he sees this something special when the, when, when the brass come in. I think it's interesting. You start the church and then they send up the big guns. Yeah. Uh, and so they're, they're being inspected by the, the brass visit. The presbyters have arrived, uh, John, and, John, John and Peter. And, uh, and they start baptizing them in the, in, in the spirit. So now he, he wants part of that. So, so the, the con man thing goes another con? Or? I think that That's an interesting question. I, I don't know. I don't think so. I think that there was some genuineness, but I think he was also still tethered to his previous life. And yes. so he saw something that was attractive. And if he was a genuine sorcerer, if he's, so, if he's actually manifesting occultic practices and, you know, using magic, and now this guy comes in and he sees, you know, baptism of the spirit, I'll do that too. Exactly. You know? But I think he was still thinking Add about that himself, you know, serving yeah. himself. Yeah, it's all about him. Yeah. Do you think that maybe some of the stuff he did actually might have been like a sign of God that maybe his own mind was being messed with because he thought he was doing tricks, but really it was not tricks. It was actually really happening and he had to convince himself God was real type thing. Like it was a weird scenario. Like where you feel like you're delusional or something? I, I mean, I, from science. The thing is, if you, if you believe... Does that make sense? Am yeah, I, I mean, it's, a, it's an argument from science. Yeah. But I mean, if he, here's what gets me. He got saved, and he was an immature new Christian, yes. where you're very susceptible yes. to still be led back away. Uh-huh. And that's, I, I see that as what's that's going what on. He just, he, he just, he was immature. I mean, we, we get in this thing that... Supposed to be safe, he's supposed to know everything right away. Mm-hmm. No. no, he doesn't. You know, he, the first year of salvation could be the most, well, any year could be dangerous, but you know what I'm saying. But uh-huh. when you're new and everything's new and you don't know everything, that's why you need mentors, that's why you need uh, mature Christians to come alongside you and help you along the way. He could have been an Im- just an immature Christian who messed everything up and went down the wrong path with it. Yeah. Well, here's the thing our responsibility is to get people in and get them saved, and then God can clean them up through mm-hmm. the truth. Through the word, you know, through preaching of the word, teaching of the word. And the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit. We don't need to try to clean them up. I, you know, when you try when you try to do that, you basically push them back out to church before you even get them. Well, and, the Holy, and the Holy Spirit's a gentleman and won't force anything. Yeah, yeah but we get to sign, make them sign a card we're going to give them. Well, yeah. based on that, Bill, Peter hits him pretty hard. Mm. I mean, verse 20, may your money perish with you. Which is basically you and your money go to hell is another interpretation of the same thing. Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money, you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Do you think Peter has the gift of discernment? I think Peter Peter is calling him out, and maybe Philip didn't see that. Which is one of the gifts of the Spirit. Yes. Uh, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord for he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. So Peter is not condemning him, but he's calling him to repentance because he's not there yet, even though he's been baptized. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Uh, NLT says bitter jealousy. Sure. Uh, So he didn't get, he wasn't filled with the I don't think so. And, and There's no way he could have been with that in his heart. 
nor nor is he really committed to Christ. I don't I don't think he's saved at this point to take the Baptist argument. Uh, so for tw twenty four, when Simon answered, does he say, "Forgive me, I repent of my sins"? Does he say, you know, "Show me the way, what I do now"? No, he says, "Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said will happen to me." I don't want this. I don't want the consequences of my sin. Oh, he he's not repenting from his sin. He just doesn't want well, to get. He's, he's, not, well, he's, he's, he's obviously, obviously Catholic. He's obviously, ha -ha. he's obviously saying that prayer works. Because well, sure. Because he's by him saying, "Will you pray for me?" It shows that he believes in I, that the prayer works. I think he acknowledges Peter's authority. He, yeah. you know, and he wants Peter to give him this here's power. Some, here's some background here. Okay. Uh, later records of his activity give the impression that either they did not intercede for him or else their intercession was ineffective. Even so, Simon and his followers continued to be known as Christians, as Justin Martyr writes in his writings. Uh, that Where did that come from? Say it again. We, we know, we know that, that he Justin Martyr him. in his writings proclaimed that Simon and his followers continued to be oh, known okay. as Christians. And that whether true Christians, but that they identified with Christians. Because we never see the next verse whether Peter actually prayed for him or not, prayed yeah. a prayer for him or not. But there's other records to show he did some, like you said, the, yeah. the statue and stuff. But Mark, Justin Martyr said that records show that he, they were still known as, I mean, Gnostics. The Gnostics considered themselves Christians. Yeah. You know. Well, every, every little cult I know of considers themselves Christians. Okay, um, so when they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem. Uh, the presbyters went home and preaching gospel in many Samaritan villages. And uh, we are completely out of time. So we're going to start at 26 next time and we'll finish this up and probably get into the story of Saul, which begins in chapter 9. Okay. Uh, goodbye, Internet. <laughs>